Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind not even the pagans tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are so proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I'd say that was a pretty different text than she read, right? (laughs) So friends, um, one of the things that I have repeatedly kind of encountered as I talk about deconstruction, as I talk with people who are taking their faith often that they were raised with down off the shelf, re-examining it, seeing like, what is going on here? Is the stuff that I was taught when I was a kid, is that wrong? Is it oppressive? Does, does it actually align with the Bible? Does, does the Bible even matter? Is the Bible weird? One of the, one of the questions that sort of most persistently shows up is uh, really about the nature of Paul. Very few times when I have encountered people who are deconstructing and talk to me about their, their struggles with the Bible, rarely do people say they have a problem with Jesus. Almost everybody loves Jesus. But Paul, on the other hand, Paul is uh, patriarchal. Paul is misogynist. Paul is homophobic. And Paul is two folks considered pretty obsessive about sex. I think that it's possible that one of the reasons we think of Paul that way is because the people we have heard talk about Paul are patriarchal, misogynist, homophobic, and obsessed with sex or at least controlling people's bodies. And one of the reasons that I say that is because I think that when we read Paul or revisit Paul with maybe a different lens or a different set of questions, we realize that maybe, not that this guy doesn't say weird stuff, because he does say weird stuff. He's, too, he's a man living 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East in a completely different culture. He's going to say weird stuff. They all said weird stuff. But I think that we have largely been handed a lens by conservative church evangelical culture. We have been handed a lens through which we read Paul, and we've been told there's no lens. This is what Paul says. Paul doesn't like women, and Paul doesn't like gay folks, and that's the end of the story. And what I want to say is, no, they did hand you a lens through which you read the Bible, And I'm not saying that what I'm going to say today is fully going to redeem Paul in your mind. 
But what I would like to do today is sort of do a meta-level kind of conversation about Paul. I want us to deconstruct today our relationship with Paul. And I want to do it in particular with a passage that is classically troublesome. Because as we read it, there were a bunch of weird things, right? Now think about this. This is the problem with reading Paul is that the people who should be the least sure that their interpretations of Paul are correct, the people who should be the least sure, are often the ones who pretend like they're the most sure. They come with all kinds of confidence. That text that I just read for you is filled with interpretive landmines. But that's never stopped many of us, uh, many of our preachers growing up from acting like they got it all figured out. The finest scholars in the world over 2,000 years debate eight or nine lines just in 1 Corinthians 5. But darn it, my pastor's got it figured out. And so what I want to do is a meta-level analysis where I just, we, we just walk through the landmines. Okay, so the sermon is going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to walk you through the landmines in this chapter alone so that at the very least we can say from a deconstructing angle, huh, maybe my relationship with Paul can be shifted a little bit. Or from a more conservative perspective, hmm, Maybe I shouldn't be so sure that I know Paul. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Here's the difficulty with reading Paul. He's hard to understand. He's so hard to understand, in fact, that one of the later biblical writers, and this is some technical stuff that is a bit nerdy, one of the later biblical writers wrote in Paul's name a book called 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were not written by Paul, but they claim Paul's name, okay? For almost 2,000 years, people have known this. This is, not, this is not like a liberal thing. This is new. Very conservative scholars reject that idea because they want an inerrant Bible, and they think it says Paul, it must be Paul, okay? But for the most part, even conservative scholars at the institution where I was trained, Asbury Theological Seminary, who is literally right now leading the conversation, splitting the denomination over gay marriage. So we're talking about pretty conservative folks. Those folks would say, Paul didn't write this letter. Okay? Now, uh, first, first, second Timothy and Titus. In those letters, they talk about how, I understand how people think I'm confusing then I'm hard to understand. In other words, what we have is somebody much later who is acknowledging even within the first and second century that there is all kinds of misunderstanding about Paul and he says hard things that are hard to understand. Okay? So for you and I, it is okay 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later to be like, yeah, this is a little bit difficult to understand Paul. He's not easy to understand. In fact, the people to whom Paul wrote the letter to the 1 Corinthians, and that is authentically Paul, 1 Corinthians is authentically Paul, the Corinthians 
couldn't understand Paul. How do I know? Well, it turns out in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is going to say, I'm answering a question that you asked me in response to my earlier letter to you, and apparently you were a bit confused. So even the, the Corinthians were like, dude, you're, you're talking nonsense to us. Like, we need you to clarify. Like, they're writing letters back and forth with him. Now, is there anything more confusing with Paul than when he starts talking about sex? And this is how he starts 1 Corinthians 5. Paul begins by saying, there is sexual immorality among you. Yeah, now we're going to have a conversation, right? Well, what kind of sexual immorality, Paul? Well, Paul says it is such a, revolts, a, a, a revolting kind of sexual immorality that it is of the type that is not even found among the pagans in the Greco-Roman world. So now you're a little bit more enticed. What in the world is going on? Well, he says, a man is having sex with his father's wife. Now, this seems straightforward. This seems like, oh, it's pretty easy to understand what is happening here until you ask a couple of questions. Let's start here. Let's start with this question. Why does he say his father's wife and not a man is having sex with his mother. Simple question, right? Well, here's the possible solution. So that's landmine number one. Why does he say his father's wife? Landmine number two is this. It has to do with how we answer that question. It turns out that in the ancient world, men would marry women who were very much younger than them. Because the mortality rate for women, particularly in child-rearing ages, child-bearing ages, was very high. So they would marry very young women who could give them more children for longer because men can reproduce most of their life and women cannot. So they would marry women who are much younger. And often, far too often, women died in childbirth. And so men would marry a second wife who was often even younger than her. Now, it is likely that what is happening here is that Paul refers to this man having sex with his father's wife uh, as what is being referenced here is probably that this is a stepmother who is much younger even than his young deceased or apparently deceased mother, and would have likely have been close to the son's age. Do you see? You picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. You following me? So already, we're like, oh, we're already well in the realm of speculation, right? I think what I just said to you makes logical sense. It explains the weird phrasing, a man is having sex with his father's wife. It, it, it explains the weird phrasing in a cultural context, but, but I am telling you from the very beginning, this is still just my speculation. 
Paul does not explain it. It's like this. Reading Paul, so put this in your back pocket for any time you're talking to somebody, okay? Reading Paul is like listening to one side of a phone conversation and trying to understand what's happening on the other side of that phone conversation. My son is the worst at that. He will hear one side of a conversation and come to the most random conclusions. And I'm telling you, that's how most people read Paul. They come to the most random, oppressive conclusions that are actually a reflection of them rather than Paul, but they're only listening to one side of the phone conversation. So, landmine number two, then, has to deal with the very young stepmother. Is the stepmother still married to the father? He says, your father's wife, but in the Greek, it's more like your father's woman. So, is she still married to him? Is the wife, is the stepmom and the, and the dad, are they still married? Are they divorced? Is the dad deceased? Right? So we're, we're already in the realm of speculation before we even got here. Now we just have a whole other realm of questions that we have to ask if we're going to try to understand this passage. Are they still married? So then, Paul sort of gets at what he finds morally problematic about it by implying that what is happening here is incest. He does this by citing Leviticus 18, 7 through 8. Do not violate your father by having sex with your mother. Now, you already notice in Leviticus right there a very patriarchal assumption, Right? Uh, the weirdness of the incest aside, having sex with your mother is a violation of your father, not your mother, right? So there's very patriarchal assumptions right there embedded in Leviticus, okay? But Paul doesn't cite that, and that's really interesting. She is your mother, don't have sex with her. Don't have sex with your father's wife. Now, what does that imply? Huh? It applies a stepmother or, think Old Testament, multiple wives. So don't have sex with one of your father's second or third or fourth wives either. Okay? None of that applies directly to the situation in 1 Corinthians. It's strange that Paul cites this text for a couple of reasons. One, Greco-Roman world, you did not have multiple wives. Monogamy was the norm. So Paul isn't citing this text because of polygamy. Or because a man is having sex with the fourth wife or something. Okay? Also, let me ask you this. Is Paul being a bit too harsh here by implying that this is incest, right? By citing a text about incest, isn't he going a little bit overboard in his revulsion? Let me say it this way. As I was working through this passage, uh, I was tweeting about this, okay? So you're getting Tom's stream of conscious right here, okay? If one of you came to me and you were like, my dad married a woman who was my age, and my dad died. 
and me and her have fallen in love. Will you marry us? You know what I wouldn't say? I wouldn't say, that's incest. Right? I might inwardly feel, that's a bit weird, but okay. <laughs> you, you do you, boo. Okay? I might feel that way. But when I think about incest, like, I think about like blood relationships, right? Well, th this, this woman in this, in this text, she, she, if, if she's the stepmother, which makes the most sense, this is not incest. It might be weird, but it's not incest. Why is, he, why is Paul citing this passage? So we've got this landmine of, like, why does he imply incest? And probably part of what it has to do with is the Greco-Roman assumption that the woman is property of the man, right? So as, as the man's property, she being then having relationships with the son would still be, I guess, a violation of the property, except for if the dad's dead and the property rights happen to somehow go through her, this could be a very pragmatic way for the family to maintain property rights. Okay, all I'm saying is there are ways of explaining this that actually makes sense, even if it's weird to us, it makes sense within first century Greco-Roman culture, right? So it seems to me that Paul's impl implication that this is incest goes too far. Unless, so, uh, or the other way I wanted to say this was that the extreme moral revulsion is out of place if the father is dead or if the, the stepmother and the father are divorced, okay? So why does Paul have such a strong reaction? The only thing I conclude, and let me say this, I want, it, I want one, I'm about to speculate, and two, my speculation goes against every other Bible commentator and scholar I read. So take this for what it's worth. Everybody seems to disagree with me. Every Bible commentary I read from 1 Corinthians 5, 1 on referred to this as incest. And I kept reading that word over and over and over, and I kept thinking to myself, why don't they ever think to themselves this moral revulsion is out of place? My take is this. I think that the son is sleeping with his stepmom while the father is still alive. Or, weirder, the father and the son are both sleeping with her. Now, I think you can see why Paul might be really, really bothered by this. But for me to say this or to come to this conclusion is me listening to one side of a phone conversation and speculating about five steps out to come to something that makes sense to me in this culture, in this time, in this place. So can you see that while this is a really intriguing passage to talk about, what I am communicating to you is that when we are reading the Bible, there is a lot of speculation. And that ought to make us people who are more humble 
and gentle in the way we interpret and apply the Bible. Especially Paul. Now, I want you to notice something else. Who does Paul hold accountable for this action? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Who is Paul holding responsible? The man, right? Who said that? Megan? The man. Now, here's what's interesting about this. And in this, in this speculation, all the commentators agreed with me. Greco-Roman moralists blamed sexual sin on women almost universally. If, if there was adultery that happened, if there was some sexual moral failing that some man or some politician had or some revolting act that they didn't like, it was almost always because women were tempstresses, women could not control their passions, and only unvirtuous men you know, would be, temp would be tempted by that. So, but always the root was that there was a woman behind it who was the blame. But Paul holds the man accountable. Now, from here on, again, we're going to go through levels of speculation, but here's what I want to communicate to you. Is it possible that the people we heard preaching when we were growing up who taught us that Paul is patriarchal and misogynist and often praised Paul for that, is it possible that they were not paying attention to the text, even the one side of the phone conversation they have, because they themselves were misogynist and patriarchal, and had they simply asked better questions, maybe they would have seen that there are places like this where maybe Paul isn't nearly as patriarchal as the rest of his culture. I'm not saying that Paul's not patriarchal. Paul is patriarchal because everybody was patriarchal 2,000 years ago. There's, there's, there's not an option really outside of that. So Paul certainly has patriarchal assumptions. But what Paul does begin to do with texts like this is he begins to break out of it. He is later going to say to the Corinthians... In, when he talks about sex again, because he's going to talk about sex a couple times, because apparently the Corinthians liked talking about sex and they had questions. He is going to say later, the woman does not have agency over her body. The man has agency over her body. Okay, sounds pretty patriarchal, right? Until the next thing Paul says which almost nobody ever cites. The man also does not have agency over his body. His wife has agency over his body. They belong to each other. Now listen, I would not say that that way. I, if, if you have ever done premarital counseling with me, I do a session that is optional, by the way, for anybody who's thinking about that. Like, I do a section on sex, 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 I can't even say the word. So embarrassed talking about it. I do a section on sex that is optional, and we talk a lot about mutuality. 
I wouldn't say it the way Paul said it, but for Paul's day, it was pretty incredible statement to say that a woman in a sexual encounter has agency over her husband's body. You could still hear Southern Baptist preachers today talk about how, like, if a man wants to have sex, the woman should submit because that's her job. That's not what Paul says. Okay? So, Paul only calls the man out here. The man is morally responsible. Now, you might say, well, there's some patriarchal assumptions in that. She act, you know, or in that as well, right? She acted... Also, why isn't she held accountable? Well, here's why. Here's why I think. I think in light of Paul saying later that there is mutuality in the male-female relationship, why wouldn't there be mutuality in accountability? I think this is why. I think it's likely, you'll notice as well, he doesn't hold the father accountable. Now, you can conclude from that, of course, like I said earlier, that the dad is dead, but here's what I think is actually happening. These are first-generation Christians. It's quite possible that this son is the only Christian in his household. Paul is not holding the woman accountable, likely, because she's not a Christian. And Paul, despite how we have been taught, has no interest in controlling the body and the activities, including the sexual activities of people who aren't in the church. In fact, he says it later in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I have told you, do not associate with people who are sexually immoral, but let me clarify that statement. What I don't mean is people who are sexually immoral, but don't go to church. Because then you'd have to take yourself out of the world and you couldn't be a witness for Jesus in the world. He literally says, I have no interest in what they do with their bodies. That is not my concern. I am not trying to control the secular world's sex ethics. That's pretty different than the way we've been told Paul operates. But he says it explicitly and almost nobody ever cites it. Why? Because we like to control what people do with their bodies. This is how the church has operated for 2,000 years. So, Paul neither names her nor mentions her agency or responsibility. He alone holds the man alone accountable. Why does Paul break the social convention? And my answer is not necessarily that Paul is a sexual progressive for the day. He might actually be a gender progressive. But um, my answer is essentially that she is likely not a Christian. I'm obviously so excited about this, I'm skipping ahead of my own PowerPoint. So that lets you know how this is going. Now, all of those landmines were just in the first verse. But sure, that preacher you heard growing up that wounded you, he sure knew what those texts was about. Now, here's the next landmine. We're out of the first verse now. We got a whole chapter of this. Y'all, did you bring lunch? Paul says to take this man and to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved. What is happening here? I think you can see multiple levels of landmines here. First of all, 
What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? What in the world does this mean? Historically, for most of the last 2,000 years, this has been understood to refer to death. Uh, kick this man out of the church so that Satan can kill him is basically how this has been interpreted. And by the way, have any of you ever heard this text preached that way? I just want to confirm. No? Okay. All right. Well, that's because your pastors weren't as radical as some of the people of the last 2,000 years. And, and here's why. Because for most of the last 2,000 years, the church has been the dominant institution in a society controlling even its politics and its economics. So when you excommunicate somebody from the church, you're not just sort of, if, if I excommunicated Megan from this church, do you know what she would do? She would go find another church, right? And most churches are, would be pretty excited to have Megan, so they wouldn't even ask her any questions about why she got excommunicated here. She might have gotten excommunicated here because she's a serial killer. But they ain't going to ask questions about it. They'll be like, oh, you want to go to our church? That's great. Right? But that's not the way it worked in the ancient world. First of all, in Paul's day, this is the only church. There isn't a Presbyterian and a Methodist and a Baptist church. This is literally the only church in Corinth. One. Two, for most of church history, the reason this has been interpreted by death is because there's also only been one church, the Catholic church. Okay? And the Catholic church has, I think in, in many ways rightly, and in some ways I would disagree with, like they have been the center of culture for most of Christian history. And so to be kicked out of the Catholic Church is in a, is in a very real sense in the past been a death sentence. You are now outside of the economic infrastructure that keeps people alive. He's not bothering me at all, by the way. Uh, you're out of the economic infrastructure that keeps you alive. You're out of the political infrastructure that keeps you alive. To be ex exiled is, is almost a death sentence. So this is how this has been interpreted. However, here's my problem. Paul says, hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved. Okay, so if this means death, that's kind of weird. How can it mean death when that his spirit might be... Okay, so we're, he's going to die fleshly, but his spirit's going to get to go to heaven even though he was doing this weird stuff. That seems weird that he has citizenship in heaven, but he can't participate in the church. That seems weird, right? Here's why I think the death interpretation is... That's why I think the death interpretation is wrong. Here's what I think is actually happening here. I think flesh, Paul has a very specific word that he uses to refer to body, soma. It just means your literal physical body. That's not the word Paul uses here. He doesn't say for the destruction of the physical body, meaning death. He says flesh. And if you've ever read Paul, flesh means like your carnal sinful nature. It means the part of you that is still committed to doing sinful things. So what Paul is saying here is that whatever uh, what is historically called church discipline looks like, it lo should look like it should be done in a way 
that actually destroys the sinful nature, not the human body, so that the person can receive salvation, so that they can be redeemed, so they can repent. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Okay. It's another landmine. I am speculating, but it's the only way for this to make sense to me. So, turning over is meant for the destruction of his worldly ways. The idea is that you go back out, you live the way you say you want to live, and you see that like, life was much more beautiful and good with Jesus. This is what he's saying. Okay? So, that his spirit might be saved. Okay, great. So, here's the landmine here. The landmine here is practical, not intellectual. Practically, the application of community accountability must now align with the goal of restoration. Have any of you ever been a process in the process of church discipline? Nobody. I have seen it done twice. Neither time was it restorative. This is really hard for Americans in particular to think about because of a couple things. One, we don't address things early. We kind of just like turn a blind eye to things and we pretend like it's not there until things are too bad and it's too late and then everything just blows up because we're polite. Okay. On the other hand, when it blows up, it's not going to be redemptive. Nothing good is coming out of something that blows up. It's hard for us to think about this because also the way even our penal codes work, right? Prison in America is not about restoration. I would even argue that prison is not about punishment. Prison is often, I'm just getting political here, prison is often racist. It's about social control and keeping black people in their place. But whatever it is, our penal code knows nothing about actual restoration. Otherwise, we would be helping prisoners get the therapy they need, the economic systems that they need, the justice that they need to come back and be productive citizens. But that's not what we're interested in. And I would say that that is actually a reflection of a church that has been the dominant culture in America that doesn't understand that accountability must go toward restoration and not merely punishment, okay? So there is no room in this for shaming, berating, hurting, or embarrassing this man. Everything must come from a sincere heart and concern that his actions with his stepmother are hurting him, it's hurting her, it's hurting the community, and it's destructive. Now, that actually brings us to a problem. How can he do that and not eat with such a man? Because Paul says this too, do not even eat with such a man. Well, how are we going to have accountability that's restorative if we don't even eat with him? Or if he's got any other family members in the church, can they not have Thanksgiving dinner with him? That seems like it'd be a problem, right? I don't think that's what Paul was saying at all. I'm just bringing up landmines. I'm going to start going through this faster. I did not expect the sermon to last this long. I think this is what he's saying. I think that Paul is actually talking here about communion. 
He's talking about what our Presbyterian friends refer to as fencing the table. The recognition that when the community has agreed that someone's actions have been destructive to themselves and the community, and that they are therefore falling under church accountability, they do not receive communion until they have actually come back and repented, which means not only that they've said they're sorry, but they have taken action to heal the wounds that they have caused. Okay. Presbyterians call this fencing the table. Here's the point. This chapter, then, is not about that. It is not about sex. It is not about Paul's misogyny or homophobia or any other weird sex obsession. This chapter is actually about how the church deals with that. The subject, the landmines that we went through in one full verse, that was just one verse. There's a whole chapter here where Paul explains that what is happening here, this man's actions are a cancer in the body that will eventually kill the whole body. Paul is, uh, imagine, I tried to come up with a good metaphor. It was, Paul is saying to a former smoker who got lung cancer, who got chemo and was healed of the lung cancer, but now all of a sudden is smoking again. And Paul is coming to them saying, hey, that old way almost ended in death. Why are you smoking again? This will kill you. This is what Paul is doing with this church. He's addressing the church as a whole. The body needs to be rid of a destructive disease. Now, okay, I'm going to be done there. I'm just going to conclude with this. Paul is not sex-obsessed at all in this text. What he does is he spins everything at the end so that he has this list of sins. And he's like, oh, yeah. Don't accompany yourself with the sexually immoral, but also don't be around the greedy. Not a problem for us as Americans, is it? He says, don't be around people who are constantly bickering. Not a problem for us, is it, on social media? He says, don't be around people who worship idols. Not a problem for us in our political world, is it? In other words, he's not just pointing a finger at this one dude. He's saying that the church as a whole needs to take seriously its own sins. I think if we read Paul through that lens instead of a lens that draws lines in the sand and said he's always talking about somebody else and trying to push somebody down, I think we would have an absolutely revolutionary Christianity.